Okay, let's get started. I want to welcome everybody, those of you who are in person, those of you who are watching uh, live on Zoom. Can I know we have a nice group? Uh, and those who will eventually listen to this uh, by the recording. Uh, this is part two of our uh, introductory shir on practical Shemitah. Uh, last week we spoke about two of the main options that people employ to enjoy produce uh, over the rest of the year. Uh, to some extent, one could call the two extremes, but definitely two very, very popular options, maybe the two most popular options. One is what's known as the heter mechira, and we discussed that obviously in great detail last week. Um, and then the other one is uh, what's called yivul nachri, which is only that, but largely means being willing to eat uh, produce that is being farmed on land owned by non-Jews. And we mentioned there that there's two aspects of that. There's the food that is imported, uh, and then there is the food that is being uh, purchased from people who are... Did I lose the Zoom? Yeah, the Zoom, oh boy, it's going to get complicated. Okay, the Zoomers are back. Somehow I lost them and then they got lost. Anyway, all right. Um, and then um, there are those who are, are purchased from, part, from land that's owned by uh, non-Jews in Israel. Um, that obviously doesn't have so many halachic issues, although we discussed some, but for a lot of people that has emotional and hashkafic issues, uh, depending on who we're really giving this money to and not supporting the Israeli economy versus perhaps some people who may not have our best interest in heart and what they might do with the money. Although I pointed out that the reality is that that is increasingly less and less uh, common than in previous Shemitah cycles. Uh, and paradoxically, in the opposite direction, whether you realize it or not, much of the produce you buy every year is from Arab farmers. I think, if I'm not mistaken, I think it's cucumbers and tomatoes. I'm not sure why that's Arab farmers as opposed to Jewish farmers. But um, I've heard from numerous reliable sources that there's quite a few things that we've been buying every year uh, that are uh, from non-Jewish farmers. Let's hope that they're the good guys. Uh, but it's not necessarily any worse next year. But those are the two big options that we discussed uh, yesterday, last week. Uh, we have a massive, massive goal for this week's year because I don't think that there's that much interest in continuing the Shemitah Halachos uh, in perpetuity. I would like to move on to some maybe pre-Rosh Hashanah things and uh, other things. And obviously I'm available to answer Shailas as other Rabbanim are in the community throughout the year. But but I did want to, at least as a part two, uh, finish the issue of food produce um, and eating and in your own home and in other people's homes. Uh, and then, Emir Tzashem, I hope I'll have enough time to give you a little bit of a basic overview of some of the gardening uh, issues. Uh, I am not Hashem, and I can't coordinate things. But it so happens, Hashem knows how to coordinate things, and my gardener came about half an hour ago. I've been begging him to come for two weeks, and he finally came. I assume if you have the same gardener, hopefully he'll be getting to you soon as well. Um, uh, and um, uh, he's, uh, and I told him, in fact, we went over some of the halachos just now, and I told him I'll be speaking about it. Uh, so, uh, you're muted. I'm muted. How'd that happen? I, I don't even, does anyone know how to turn that back on? How would I, I don't even know how to do that. Oh, on me, okay. I'm there. Can you hear me again? You can hear me, I hope, right? Yeah, okay. I'm unmuted. Okay, great. Thank you. I don't know how that happened, but uh, too much going on here. I apologize. Anyway, so uh, hopefully we'll have a chance to get to some of the basic, basic gardening things. There's no way we can do every... You know, each one of these things really are their own shear, but we're going to try to give an overview of all of them. So let's get back to this, what I would consider, in many cases, the ideal, but certainly, so you should be aware, the third option that you have for food consumption during the year, not heter mechira, not buying the non-Jewish produce and the like, but rather what's known as otzar bezdin. 
And this um, is uh, very, very important, and in many ways, I would say, is the ideal is the ideal solution. Basically, what this means, in a nutshell, and we'll show you in the sources exactly where this comes from uh, momentarily, but basically what this means is, instead of the, the people who previously, last six years, have owned the farms, and then you know, they work the land, they do their best, we, we, we pay them for their services, or some wholesale, wholesale pays them for their services to buy their produce, instead, uh, they transfer ownership over to the Besdin, who then hires those people as shluchim of the Bezdin, they then work for the Bezdin, and then they get paid, not based on what they produce, they get paid a salary. They get paid a salary, but they're not getting paid, uh, they're not selling their produce, and they're not working their own land anymore, they're working as representatives of the Bezdin. Where does this come from, and why does this help, and what would it mean practically for each of us in our kitchen, which is, I know, what we all want to get to. So let's see a little bit of the sources, and then we'll explain and expand on that. So if you take a look at your source sheet in uh, source number one, um, you will see that um, this is a Tosefta. Tosefta, for those who are unfamiliar, is a contemporaneous source of the Mishnah from the Tanaim, and the Tosefta in Masech Shviyas says something very fascinating. Source number one in Parak Chet, in chapter eight in Masech Shviyat, that Berishona ha'yushluchi bezdin yoshven ha'pitchai arayos. The Rabbanim wouldn't be hiding in the base medrash, wouldn't be hiding in the bezdin, they would be sitting at the gate in the center of what would be the center of the action, so to speak. We might call that the Merkaz. Kol mi shemevi peros betoch yodo notlin osomimenu v'notlin lehem mazon shalosh sudos v'ashar machnisen osol otsar shabir. This is not as, as immediately relevant for the Chiddush, but it's relevant somewhat. People would farm in advance of Shemitah. They would come with whatever then grew at some point during Shemitah. They would give it over to the Bezdin. They would give their produce over. The Bezdin would give them back enough just for a small amount for three meals. And then they would um, give the rest to the Bezdin. And the Bezdin would keep that and put it in some kind of an Otsar, some kind of a storehouse so that they were collecting on behalf of the community. More importantly, continuing on the second line, says the Mishnah, what happens at different times when the, the, the Tosefta describes, whether it's Te'inim or Anavim or Zaytim, it gives three examples, um, when the time for harvest of different types of produce came, says the Tosefta in the second line, Higiyazman Te'inim, Shluche Bezdin Sochrin Poalin. This is amazing. The Bezdin would hire workers, and then it gives descriptions. Odrin, Osnos, and Devela, etc., etc. Again, I didn't give all the details here, because this was, it was a long piece. But basically, the Tosefta outlines in explicit detail how the Bezdin would hire workers who would work the land on Shemitah in order to maintain the crop, to harvest the crop, and then, if you take a look on the third line, they would bring that produce to the Bezdin, and again, the Bezdin would take this produce and put it into the storehouse. So the Tosefta seems to be saying, at face value, that while you or I couldn't be working the land, things that are being described here are things that are explicit in the Chumash, explicit in the Mishnah that are prohibited on Shemitah. But that the Bezdin, it's, all, it's good to be a rabbi, it's mutter. The Bezdin's allowed, they or their representatives, to farm the land. The Tosefta describes, as I mentioned, three different types of produce where this happens, and then the Tosefta concludes this selection at the end of source number one, and then why would the Bezdin do all this? Why do they keep on putting things in the storehouse? They're not hoarding. Machalkin mehen arve shabasos kol echad echad beto. And each week, they had a service, they had a gamach, they had a whole tomchei Shabbos kind of system, but in this case, we're all the aniyim. Everyone was reliant on the Bezdin for some distribution cycle and system that would occur throughout 
um, throughout the week, on a weekly basis. Okay? Now, the simple reading of this Tosefta, as I've described it to you, seems startling. And in fact, it's so startling that there are some Mepharshim who twist themselves in a pretzel to reread the source because they simply can't believe that that's really what the Tosefta is saying. Nevertheless, no less than the Ramban in source number two accepts and seems to paskin like the Tosefta at face value. Source number two, he explains in a broader point, quoting the Tosefta, that the rabbis osu takonos mitivrayim. The rabbis had to step in and help manage things to make sure that people could survive throughout the Shemitah year. And then, after quoting the Tosefta, he paraphrases at the bottom of source number two, Bezdin Sochrim Poelin, again, he says it quite explicitly, that the Bezdin would hire workers, Botrin, Umoskin, Uvloktim, these are all things, he's talking about some of these things have to do with grapes, but harvesting and, and pressing, or, or olives, getting the oil, getting the wine, etc., all, all this time, and then they would store it in the vats and other places. Kiderech Sharshanim, look at the end of source number two. Kiderech Sharshanim, the Ramban is explicit. The Bezdin and the representatives are doing things that are done in a normal farming, a normal agricultural process. Venotnin, where? Lootzashilahem. And then we put it again in their storehouse. We keep on seeing this. And all of this is a special takana for the Rabbanim or the representatives. They're doing the work, etc., etc. The Ramban accepts this at face value. So if we accept the Ramban, and that's the simple reading of the Tosefta, not all of us are so good at aerobics that so we can twist ourselves into a pretzel. This is the simple reading, but Ramban endorses the simple reading of the Tosefta. Evidently, all sorts of stuff that's also for you and me as private people would be permissible for the Bezdin, or let's be honest, how good of a farmer do you think the rabbi is going to be? Right? With his two left thumbs. So, the Bezdin hires representatives, whoever they may be, who hopefully know what they're doing, to work on their behalf. Now, what's the rationale? Why in the world should this be mutter? Before we discuss, which is, of course, the part we're getting to, which is the most important part for us, which is how does this translate into 2021? But what's the rationale? Why should something that's so clearly prohibited, some case in Midaraisa, even, for you and me, but all of a sudden, if we transfer ownership, or if the Bezdin, the Bezdin went into real estate, the Bezdin went into agriculture, all of a sudden they have a business, they own thousands and thousands of dunam, and they are hiring workers, why should things that were prohibited all of a sudden be permitted for them? So this is actually explained by none less than the Chazon Ish, source number three. And he explains as follows. Shaminan anavim begat. That's an example of a source which explicitly states it's prohibited to press and to do all sorts of things to the grapes. And that phrase dorchen anavim is exactly what we had previously seen in the Ramban and the Tosefta, which is permissible. So the, so the Chazanish is in, implicitly asking, well, why is it that we usually prohibit it? It's explicit that the very things that the Tosefta had told us that the farmers who are representing or the shluchim of the Bezdin are doing, here the Chazanish is quoting a source that says it's Asr. Three words the Chazanish explains the whole thing. Hainu, Dafka, Bailam. What the Chazanish explains, again, on the one hand you could say it's a Chiddush, on the other hand he's really just explaining what seems to be clear in the Tosefta and the Ramban, is that the nature of the Isurim on Shemitah are not the same necessarily as it is on, we can't do malacha on Shabbos. We can't do malacha on Yantif. To some extent, we can't do malacha on Cholam 
Here we're talking about Isurei Malacha. I mentioned at the start of last week's year that we weren't going to be spending so much time describing all the details that relate to the farmer working the land. Although, again, we'll discuss a little bit in the second part of today's year when we discuss gardening. But the point is, that category, the topic that we're going to briefly touch on at the end of today's year, that we really aren't discussing about the avodat hakarka, so, because we're not farmers, but if I would have used the term to describe it, I would have said there is an iser malacha to work the land on Shemitah. After all, the Torah calls it Shabbat Haaretz. Right? The land has to rest. It's a Shabbat. It's a Shabbos for the land. All true. And yet, says Chazonish, explaining the Ramban, explaining the Tosefta, there's a fundamental difference between Shabbos and Yantif, let's say, and Shemitah. They both have Isurei Malacha. Just forget the details for a minute. But they both have an idea of you can't do certain acts, certain labor, certain work. But says the Chazonish, what you see from the Tosefta is fundamentally, conceptually, there's a different mentality completely. Shabbos, the work itself is usher. In Shemitah, I don't know if it's the entire thing or a determinate, significant part of the prohibition. It's not the work per se. It's that work that you do on the land demonstrates ownership over the land. Who gets to work the land? The owner or someone that the owner gets permission to. I can't just go into someone's land and start farming and take the stuff. Working the land is an indication that you own the land. What's one of the primary messages of Shemitah? Uh Uh-uh. You don't own the land. Hashem owns the land. That is, we discussed at the beginning of last week's year, we mentioned from the Sefer HaChinuch four different ideas of Shemitah. And I mentioned that the Rambam and Mornavuchim has other ideas, but that's one of the ideas that classical Mepharshim attribute to Shemitah. Says the Chazanish, that's what we learned from this idea. If you were working the land in your farm, that's usr. Now, and don't tell me, well, if I went into Plony's farm, I just started working it, that should be permissible. First of all, then you're a ganaf. He said, well, obviously that's not necessarily a line that practically can be done. But says this Chazish, in this case, especially Chazal did this Latovat Hatzibur, where it's not anyone owning the land. Now it's the Bezdin as custodians. They're not private ownership. And therefore it's not, the people who are working the land aren't doing it in any way to demonstrate ownership. That seems to be the rationale of the Tosefta, of the Ramban. Now maybe the Chazanish is wrong, maybe there's a different rationale. Okay, this is the best one that I've seen. But either way, Yehei Masha Yehei, this is the idea known in shorthand as Otsar Bezdin. That a Bezdin in advance of Shemitah makes arrangements with the farmers so that they now become the owners of the land. Now in theory they could hire anyone to work the land, but for obvious reasons it's much easier for them to then just hire the people who were working the land and owned it to begin with. But they are now not farming their land and they're not doing it so that they can make a profit based on how good a job they do. They get a set salary from the Bezdin, which means, as you understand, that the Bezdin is taking a humongous risk up front. And then they're going to get paid as workers, regardless necessarily of a fluctuation of maybe quality or quantity. They're not going to get paid by how many kilos of tomatoes they're producing, how many kilos of cucumbers. They get hired to work the land because it's not them working their own land anymore. They're representatives of the Bezdin. And in fact, this suggestion, while not the only possible solution to the Shemitah problem, 
was originally, it's in the Tosefta, it's not clear how often it was ever used in ancient, ancient times, but we discussed last week when we discussed the Hatimahira, that it was in the late 1800s when Jews started coming back to the land that there was the first crisis of how are we going to survive in Shemitah, which eventually engendered the first Heter Mechira. And already then in the 1800s, in source number four, we have a letter from Rav Kook, in which Rav Kook says here, even though I've endorsed the Heter Mechira, again, as we said last week, Rav Kook did not pioneer the Heter Mechira, but he endorsed it when, it was, when he had responsibility. But he says in source number four, which I think is so beautiful, um, I like the idea of it, says Rav Kook, even though I did it and I'm selling all of Eretz Yisrael, etc. Gamarti b'dati, source number four. Gamarti b'dati la'asos b'cholzot. Nevertheless, even though I'm already doing it, I want to do anything else I can do. Everything that's possible. Lotzois yidei chovas kaladeos. Which I think is a beautiful mentality. Rav Kook knew that not everyone was going to accept the Hetem So let me do something else in addition to the Hetem For other people who won't rely on the Hetem And what was that? He accepted and he advocated and he in fact employed in his day an actual Otzer Bezdin. From what we know, I think historically, uh, it didn't last that long. I mean, it was maybe one or maybe two Shemitah cycles. And then it seemed to have just, for whatever reason, it wasn't practical and there's huge expenses of the Bezdin in advance. It's not so practical. It didn't get repeated that much until more modern times. And in fact, in source number five, and this is one of a few places I could have given you, not only does our cook support the Ozer Bezdin, so does the Chazon Ish. He says explicitly that even though there are different people who interpret the Tosefta differently, etc., etc., but we accept a simple reading in source number five, Once you have the ownership being transferred to the Bezdin, it's not private ownership anymore, then the very acts that would have been prohibited become permissible for the Rabbanim or their hopefully more competent representatives on the land. And this is the basic conceptual premise. I want to just explain now what this will mean practically for all of us. But this is the idea of Otsar Bezdin. And one of the significant, we'll get to some of the chorus about this in a moment, but just to explain to you, the advantage of this is, first of all, it avoids all of the contentiousness of the Heter Mechira. I don't just mean the fighting, that, I mean even the halachic principled disagreement of Heter Mechira. Heter Mechira, as we said, is very controversial. It avoids all of the potential hashkafic or political uncomfortability, you know, discomfort of buying land, buying produce and supporting the non-Jewish farmers. It is paradox- in the opposite direction, is allowing the Israeli agricultural economy to be maintained so it doesn't fall apart, forget in the seventh year, but it's still going and it can reclaim its firm, firm footing in the eighth year. And here is both the opportunity and the challenge, which we'll get to in a few moments. Unlike the other two, here's the key difference. The Heter Mechira on one extreme, Yavul Nachar on the other extreme, they're very different, but they share one thing in common. The produce, if you buy either of those that you bring into your house, is no different than the produce of any other year. There's no Kedusha, there's nothing special, there's no Mitzvah. You've circumvented and avoided the whole thing. The only solution on any mass scale, I don't mean somebody who just happens to have their own farm in their backyard and something grows and you know, he's able to take it. Or, or like in the Torah's ancient vision, you're just walking down the street and everything's hefkar and you go into someone's backyard and just take something. That's not going to work for a big country in a modern economy, obviously. The only solution of the three which allows you not to avoid Shemitah, but to actually benefit from Shemitah, perhaps fulfilling a mitzvah, as we'll see in a few moments, and actually 
have Shmita produce, Kadush produce, that only of the three options, that's the Otsar Bezdin. I want to explain a little bit now what that means practically. And just to show you that there are a lot of practical things, I don't know if I ever done this in my life on a source sheet. I gave you, for those who can see it, three links. Um, this basically, even though I told you, and uh, as I just mentioned, that on the pa- on paper this is the shmi- this is the solution that everyone from Rav Cook to the Chazanish felt is the most mahudar. If I'm not mistaken, at least in previous Shemitah cycles. I do believe there have been various Otsar din, if that's the right uh, grammar, um, out of the Haredi world, and some Dafka out of Bnei Brak, because this is the Chazanish's position, no one uh, denied that. But for a variety of reasons, in certainly the last three Shemitah cycles in particular, what has beco- it has become something which is much, much more popular and accepted in the Datilumi world. I think there are quite a few, I don't know the statistics, who benefit from it too. But as far as I know, uh, the biggest and most significant uh, Otsar Bezdin is what's called Otsar Haaretz, which is a uh, benefit, excuse me, benefit, it is a uh, system uh, that is being done by a wonderful, uh, a wonderful Machon, I want to just, I think it's called Machon Torah Laaretz. So uh, that Machon is um, an incredible resource in general for all agricultural halachos. And they, I think it was three Shemitah cycles ago, they undertook to make their own Otsar Bezdin, which is called Otsar Haaretz, which is fantastic and by far the biggest and I think the best halachically. Uh, on your sheet, and again, anyone who didn't get a sheet or who needs, I'm happy to uh, send anyone these links. But they have a Hebrew website. For those of you who can read the Hebrew, go to the Hebrew website because it's easier and better. But they have an English website. I gave you two links there, uh, you know, en.torahland.org.il. That's the Machon Torah Aretz. If you just go to their homepage in the English, you'll find the links that I gave you. These are the ones that say Otzer Bezdin, Shemitah. You know, you're, not, you're not there looking for uh, you know, Orla advice right now. You're not there looking for Truma advice right now or Kilayim. You're looking for the Shemitah stuff. So you can find all the links. But these are things that explain in great detail uh, what they do. And then the third link I gave you is their email address. Unfortunately, to sign up for Otzer Aretz, which I'm about to discuss the process in a minute, but to sign up for it, they don't yet have an entire system online in English. The form is available on their Hebrew website. I don't think it's that complicated, but not everyone is, is familiar, comfortable doing something like that in Hebrew. So the best that they have, which is admittedly not great, but the best that they have, and I, I have this, it's on their website, but I spoke to the person in charge. I spoke to him on the phone two weeks ago. You email them, there I gave you the email address, and you ask for Sarit, who's the English-speaking secretary, and she will walk you through signing up everything that you need. It would be better if they could just do it all automated. Maybe my next Shemitah they'll be able to figure that out. But for whatever reason, that was one snag that they have not been able to figure out. So what do they do and what should you do? Again, if, you're, if you want to take this option and what does it mean? So what they do, you know, again, probably a million things I don't understand. But big adult, what we need to understand is they're employing this system. They have contracted with I don't know how many farmers, I don't know how many thousands and thousands of dunum of land for various different produce in Israel. So that those farmers are now working on behalf of the Bezdin, not for themselves. They get paid a living wage uh, by uh, the Bezdin. And they are contracted to make sure that they can work the land as representatives of the Bezdin to make sure the produce can get to market. I remember last week the year, and I believe it's true at least as much this case, if not more, so maybe there's other stores. But last year, seven years ago, I know Best Market was one of the places in Beit Shemesh uh, that had their stuff. It could be that there's other places. If you go to the website by city, it lists you where they sell. 
In addition, this is a new thing this year, they're very proud of it, and in Beis Shemesh can benefit, they're doing deliveries. You can get deliveries. Again, it's all on the website. It tells you where you deliver from. You can get deliveries, okay? Um, so that makes things easy in, in that sense. There are two ways to get Otsar arts. There's the Bidyevit way, which works, and then there's the better way, better way for them and better way for you. The better, more Mahadran way is to sign up in advance and commit to paying them in advance a certain amount of money per month. Try to guesstimate in your own mind what you usually pay for produce, for vegetables and for fruits. It could be some people 50 shekel a week, for other people it could be 100 shekel, whatever your family usually eats. And you can do a horat keva, you can set it up with them via the credit card. If you do that, I remember seven years ago they sent you coupons. And you'd go, and you know, I felt like chas shalom, I was like on, you know, food stamps or something. Yeah. But then I felt proud, I'm doing shemitah. Uh, but they gave you these things, these coupons. Now, it's 2021, who needs that? You're going to get an app. When you sign up, they send you a link, you get an app. Uh, you know, if you can't do an app in Israel, then where could you do it, right? Think, <laughs> we have an app, there's an app, there's an app for everything, now there'll be an app for shemitah. And you'll be able, you'll go to best, you'll give them the thing, you'll pay right there, it'll just deduct from the money that you've already given the best. You already spent the money. They'll come out. The bit, huh? No, correct. No, not at all. Not at all. The benefit of that is twofold. Number one, for the Bezdin, it's a huge help. Because most of their expenses are on the front end. To set everything up, to give the farmers are committing enormous amounts. If not enough people do this, they will come at a huge loss. Two Shemitah cycles ago, one particular Oza Bezdin themselves lost 10 million shekel. Because not enough people did it. So the more, now, if you use it throughout the year, you're also helping them. But the more you can give them money up front, the better. I asked them explicitly, I heard on the phone from Rabbi Bloom, who's, I think, he might be a native Israeli, but I think his, it sounds like his parents must be South African or Australian, I'm not sure exactly his background. He speaks in Israeli accented, or some accented English. So he, he's one of the Rabbanan of this Bezdin you can speak to, who I did. Um, and he confirmed to me 100%, what if at the end of the year I didn't spend all the money? Maybe I, I thought I would use, who knows what. And the end, we ate a lot of pasta this year, who knows what. You know? So he said, first of all, at the end of the year, I'm sure the Bezdin could use, the, I'm sure the Mahon could use the money, you can make it as a tax deductible donation. And if you don't, we'll, we'll refund the money. We haven't used. He t- I heard it, he said this to me, okay? The other reason why it's beneficial is not only to help them, anything that we can do to make this look not like we're paying for the food and paying for produce, because this is Kadosh Shemitah. You're not supposed to be buying and selling Kadosh produce. There's an Isra Schora. So the more you do it, Bishino, right? Most people don't usually pay in advance for their produce. So the more you can do it in a different way than normal has certain halachic hidurim as well. Bottom line is that's the best thing is if you sign up, become a member of Otsar Arts. Again, if you want this option, become a member. I don't know how long it takes to do on the website with Sarit because I haven't done it yet. Full disclosure. Uh, once we can close down the Corona Ward in my house, maybe then I'll have some free time uh, to work on it. Um, but um, that's the best thing. You'll get your app, and hopefully it'll be smooth. And if it's not smooth, you have connections and people to, that you can be in touch with. But let's say you didn't do it. The answer is it doesn't matter. Bottom line, and I remember this from last year, because I got a certain amount of coupons at the beginning of the year, and either I had ignorance or laziness, I just can't remember, I never got more coupons. Whenever I ran out of my coupons, I still want the best, and I still got the same produce. And they let you pay for it there, and then they're supposed to then transfer that money to the Bezdin. I trust that they did. So even if you don't do this, if you want to get Otsar Bezdin produce, if you go to Best, you can pay for it there on the spot. It's better halachically and for the Bezdin if you can give them the money in advance, but if you didn't, it's okay 
anyway. Okay, that is bigadol, what it is uh, doing. But it's important to know two things. One a practical point, practical halachic, and the other one really a halachic, which we'll get to, but what do you do once you have that in your house? The practical slash halachic is, we discussed last year, week that there's a rabbinic prohibition known as svichin. Everything I told you works on a Torah level. But we mentioned last week that the Rabboni made a takana, not for fruit, but for vegetables and grain, things which are usually planted every year, that even if it was planted before Shemitah, if it grows in the Shemitah year, there's a rabbinic prohibition. Sfichin beats out Otzerbeth. Meaning, therefore, on a practical level, everything I told you will only work in the beginning of the year, very early in the year, for things of the... Again, we discussed the dates last time of of vegetables and grains, and mostly be beneficial for fruit. Because at some point early in the year, the vegetables will already be sifin, because vegetables, once they're picked in the seventh year, that's already a problem. Now again, they've already been harvesting and hoarding some. Again, not too early, or or you'd get rotten tomatoes. But a few days before Shemitah, they'll already be taking stuff. If they pick it before Rosh Hashanah, then that's fine and you can get it from them. Um, but there are limits to what they can provide. Otsar Bezdin can't do everything. So how is it that you'll get vegetables throughout the year through Otsar Aretz? So that we discussed briefly last week, and I'll mention it maybe again. There are also all sorts of other solutions that people use. They will be getting, they have uh, farms that they've contracted with in the southern parts of Israel. We mentioned there's a huge debate. Mitzpah Ramon, above, below, where you draw the line. But there's definitely parts of, in the south of Israel where according to many poskim, the laws of Shemitah do not apply. So they use farms there. There's also the whole, what we colloquially refer to in Israel as the Gush Katif method of farming or kind of a hydroponics or something that's called Matzah Menutak uh, in Hebrew where you are on a table or some kind of a bed above ground with some kind of plastic separation between the, the dirt of the ground and where the things are growing. A lot of poskim including Rav Vosner from B'nai Brak and other people have felt that many of these things, either the south on its own, the hydroponic or you know, whatever you want to call it, Gush Katif type farming on its own, or a combination are for sure mutter. So you will see when you go to best and the things will be labeled, sometimes you'll see, again, at some point you do have to read on your own, but you'll see things will be labeled, sometimes it will say Aravad Dromit, it will say Matzam Nutak. Some, some kashras agencies are machmer, they do both. They'll go to the south and do a hydroponic thing in the south. And many, even people who usually wouldn't hold to the Hatem Mechira, but they say, do a Hatem Mechira for the south, and a combination of Hatem Mechira with the... So you'll see that stuff outlined, and I think almost all the mainstream post scheme hold that any of these, and certainly using a combination of these, is also mutter. So on the one hand, if you go with this Otsar Aretz, Otsar Bezdin option, some of the things you'll be buying even in the beginning of the year, and some things that you'll be able to buy through most of the year, will be Shemitah produce. You will not have circumvented Shemitah, you'll be able to sort of go right through it. But even they... Unless you want to have a very limited diet, which is fine. But if even they, if you want to have your full, normal um, you know, menu of vegetables and grains that you would use during a normal year, even they will also include as part of what they're selling things which are from these various solutions. There's no one solution that can fit all. And therefore, just like I mentioned at the end of last week's year, when people use the term Yavul Nachri, it's a kind of a catch-all for like, not the Heter Mechira, and not Otsar Bezdin. 
When people say Otzer Bezdin or Otzer Aretz, it's also somewhat of a catch, an umbrella term, because within what they're selling or you'll be buying from them, there are different forms of produce. Okay? Now, what I want to get to, I will take any questions that you have, if I can answer them, because the, the, the Otzer Aharetz website might be the best place to answer some of your practical questions. But anything I can answer on that, I will answer right now. And then I want to get to, to, finish, to wrap the, up this before we, so we can get to the second part of this year in gardening. Um, the next thing I want to discuss is, well, if you get the Otzer Bezdin produce and you bring it into your house, so what are the halachos for how you deal with it in your house? Because to the extent that we're talking about, especially fruits, uh, vegetables in the beginning of the year and fruit throughout the year from the Otzer Bezdin, there's a likelihood that it's going to have Kedushat Shviyat, and we're going to have to know what to do with that. So that I want to get to in a second. But So don't, if that was your question, I'm getting to it. If you have any question about the procedure of signing up or using this Otzer Bezdin, please ask away. Yeah. So there, there's a discussion about that, but many poskim, and I, I, I don't remember what their poskim say, but there definitely are poskim who say once it's oats or are, it's mutter to do that also. Okay? The other thing I mentioned, oh, thank you so much. I appreciate that. Both of you? I thank both of you. Um, as I mentioned last week, but I'll reiterate, and again, it was true last year, and I'm hoping it'll be true this year as well, that they're pretty good, best, and they're supposed to be very good, hopefully they will be very good, um, about having everything identified, not only you know, on the shelves, you know, what is this, but if I remember correctly, last time they had different color bags, which you could put things in to make sure you could keep things straight for yourself, and when you got to the, uh, to the, you know, to, to the uh, kupa, uh, it was clear uh, there as well. Yes? They, yeah, no, the, the, the Bezdin is now the owners of the land. It's not a I don't think that... Uh, I, 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 what, what type of Kenyan the Bezdin uses with the farmers, I don't remember, honestly. But if, if they become... It's not, and now they are hiring the workers as their representatives to work their land. And why, why can't the I mean, it, it, there's the, the Xera of, again, you could have, I guess I, theoretically I could have imagined that the halacha would have been differently. But as far as I could tell, the consensus seems to be that the Xera of Svichim applies to anything that grows in the Shemitah year, regardless of if the land was owned by the Bezdin or not. If that wasn't true, it would be you know, even easier for us. But that is a little bit, of, again, it's easier for the Bezdin. They have to come up with more solutions because they can't just use the same solution for everything throughout the whole year. Last question, yes. Oh, so that's the point. I, I, think, I think it's because of what I'm about to get to. The question was, why is this not as popular in the Haredi world? So I'm speculating, but I think I know the answer, and it's about, it's about the next point we're going to get to anyway. Yeah? Because I missed the first part of the share last week. Okay. What's the best choice? You, you, oh, you mean, now you want me to have an opinion? <laughs> that I didn't say in the first part, so you wouldn't have heard it. I'm not prepared to make like a categorical statement for everyone about that because I think different families come from different perspectives. It may even depend on the dynamics of your family, uh, etc. Um, I already alluded to, but I guess I'll be more explicit if it wasn't already clear. You know, this will be our second Shemitah living in Israel. And the first one we did the Otzer Bezdin and I plan on doing it again uh, this year. 
the reason I think it's ideal, and what I would call, you know, if, you know, a term which is bantied about in many contexts in Israel, mahadrin, uh, the reason I think it's Mahadrin is because of what I want to get to in a moment, which is um, the benefits, spiritually, frankly, and religiously, uh, of doing this. But there is definitely a risk, because as we'll see in a moment, there are all sorts of halachos about how you handle Shemitah produce, and not everyone wants to take that risk. Um, the Hatta Mechira I mentioned, again, I wasn't advocating for it, but last week I mentioned you know, the halachic basis of the Hatta Mechira, and you know, many great poskim, starting in the 1800s, but as recently as now, Rav Yitzhak Yosef you know, is, puts his name and his reputation uh, on, on the line for the Hatta Mechira, and there's no, he's as big a godel as anyone alive today. Rav Malamed, the Penin Halacha, he endorses the, uh, very strongly the Hatta Mechira as an ideal option. There are people who very much, very significant, who advocate the Hatta Mechira. And there are many, and certainly uh, uh, in the Haredi world, who advocate the Yivul Nachri. Uh, approach. I mentioned on a practical level, this really becomes complicated if you want to go out at any point next year. Because you really only have the two options in restaurants and hotels and the like. I'm not aware of uh, you know, public places that you and I could eat uh, next year which are going to use Otsar Bezins. Even if you'd want to prefer that, it's probably only realistic to prefer that in your house. But hotels or restaurants and the like are going to have to make a choice. Either they're going to be Hatem Achira or they're going to be Yivul Nachri. I will tell you that I saw uh, one of the links which I didn't put on the sheet, but it's on the website. If you go to that on Otsar Haaretz, they have a link to like a two-minute YouTube video that they made just, you know, trying to get people to hopefully sign up for this. And they mentioned, I think, this shoot cycle, which they've never had before, if I understood correctly, they have contract with the army. That means that they're trusting, the, you know, I'm not saying they shouldn't trust, but it means that they're trusting the Rabbinut Sa'it to really uh, make sure they can manage it in the army, but that the army, I guess for religious soldiers, are going to be, I don't know if it's completely or in whatever limited quantities, but they have a contract now with the army to do uh, distribution, and for the first time ever, I don't know how many, but also with num- numerous hospitals. Again, there I guess the assumption being that if you have a mashkiach and you have a certain staff, they can control you know, what they do with... Uh, the produce, as opposed to you know, in the back of a restaurant or in a hotel, where I guess it's more hefker. Again, that's their responsibility. I don't know what the level of risk that they're taking is. They have to have mashkichim, like any other form of kashrus, um, and, and they work on that. So let's get to the final point in this regard, because it's, it's come up in a few of the questions, and that is, well, if you do this, if you do uh, Oter Bezdin, again, the Gottlieb family and anyone else invited to join us uh, will be doing, um, so what does that mean? So, okay, it means we talked about how you'll sign up for this and you'll go to Best or wherever you'll go or you'll get the deliveries. Now it's home delivery. Matova Manaim. Once you have it, it seems clear according to all poskim that produce, unlike the either two other two options, that produce has sanctity. It has Kedushat Shvit. Now that's an idea which is first mentioned in the Gemara in source number six, that not only is Shemitah about resting and not working the land, but af tvuata kodesh, source number six. That tvua, grain, which is identified as a seventh year grain that grows, is kadosh. And there are numerous, numerous halachos that devolve and are applicable to the produce once it has sanctity. For example, you're not supposed to export it. That's not our topic. You're not supposed to be exporting it. What happens if you're in America and you see a Jaffa orange and it's seventy? It's not supposed to be there. You're not supposed to export it. Even regular rules of schora, of buying and selling, are not supposed to be done. You're not supposed to... All sorts of things. But the thing that's most relevant to us as a consumer um, is the issue of not creating hefseh. We can't destroy it. 
That is a significant, significant uh, point in source number nine. The Gemara tells us, La'achla Amra, the Torah says that this should be a Shabbat Haaretz to eat the produce. La'achla, source number nine, La'achla Amar, the low le'schora. You're not supposed to, excuse me, low excuse me, you're not supposed to let it get destroyed. Now, you know, just, you know, stom destroying produce, you know, who's doing that? What does that mean for you and I as regular consumers? It means throwing it out when it was still edible. That is very possibly a form of hefzid. Um, you know, my parents and grandparents you know, always used to point out to me, uh, and I think it's true in all of our families, right? We, the typical family, and I, I'm no better than anybody else, the typical family, what we throw out, our elder bubbles and zetas could have lived you know, for a week on, right? In other words, we throw out tons of stuff that's really edible. Our kids for sure. Right, we know two bites of the chicken and it's already, ew, right? So, uh, I mean, maybe it's just my kids. Um, I have a feeling we're not unique in that regard. Right? So, there's lots of actual food. You're not just throwing out bones. You're not just throwing out, uh, you know, skin or whatever. You're actually, you know, or peels. Peels might have their own issue, but even if they don't. So, this is a very, very serious issue. And basically, there are... Uh, the following options, and this is complicated. This is hard work, and this is why some people try to avoid it. Um, the, what, what I think is often referred to, and I think this is what we did seven years ago, and Blinetter will do again this year, I think this is the most mhudar way of doing it, is what I quote for you in source number 10. Source number 10 is an important sefer. The Mishpate Aretz is um, a sefer. I don't want to mispronounce the author's name, even though I would like to give him the cover. Reichenberg or Reichenberg, I'm not sure. But anyway, he, it's from a machon, a machon that focuses on Mrs. Atulius Baretz, that is based on the Psakim, and the head of the machon is Ravafrati. Some of you may know the name, is one of the Tamidim Mufakim of Ravel Yashiv. So this is 100% you know, accepted in the highest levels of the Haredi community. Um, there are two main machons in Israel that seven, you know, every year, seven, not just Shemitah year, every year focus on the laws of Trumos and Maestros and all these things and are incredible resources. They're both tremendous for the respective communities. The Machon Tarv Aretz, which is the one we've been quoting before, which is primarily out of the Dati Lumi community with Yaakov Ariel and others who are the main poskim there. And then this other Machon, which was from um, Rav Afrati and based on a lot of the Pesachim of Rav Yashiv. So in this series of Svarim called Mishpate Aretz, which is again from this Rav Afrati uh, Machon, so they point out source number 10, Hanoheg Hu Shemiyachadim Pach this is known as the famous Pach Shemitah. You take a separate kind of a can or a garbage can, um, and you have that separate from the rest of your waste, the separate of your garbage. Um, Rev. Ramon and others recommend you know, putting a big sign on it, Kedusha Shviyas. Uh, first of all, so people don't get confused, you or your kids. And Rev. Ramon has this like, cute little thing. He doesn't like that people write Pach Shemitah. Because Pach is garbage. There's no such thing as garbage in Shemitah. It's Kadosh. Right? Kedusha Shviyas. Okay, that could be a nice activity. You already have an activity for your kids if they're in Seger or if they're in Bidud. We can make the Pach Shemitah signs or the Kedusha Shviyas signs. And you have that, and when you have some of that Shemitah produce, you bought it best or whatever, instead of throwing it out with the, in, the rest, in the regular garbage, you put it in there. And you basically wait. It's gross. Just in case you didn't realize where we're going. Yes, this is gross. You wait any number of days, I don't have any formula for how long you should wait, your guess is as good as mine, but you wait until it really, really becomes gross uh, and inedible, and then you can throw that out. Now, okay, one more second. One of the things that people have noticed, is, well, if you, if you throw all of that together, 
from Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, that could be its own problem because the stuff that was there, let's say you put on Sunday, it's gross. You and I wouldn't want to eat it. But it's still technically maybe edible. But if I throw the gross stuff from Monday on it, now all of a sudden it's going to be... So the answer is yes. So it's more complicated than just having the Pach Shemitah. Each day you put stuff in, you should put it in a separate bag. And at the end of that day, you tie off that bag. So now that's Sundays. And then you have the Monday bag on top of it. And after a few days, you then have to you know, put your hand in and take out the Sunday bag and throw that out. Alyssa, do you still want to ask me why lots of people don't do this? Okay, there's a little bit of work. Okay, fine, that's another option. People who have lived in Israel enough years may have other options or other suggestions. This is one way of doing it. You don't have to have the special pach. You just want to make sure you don't get confused and you don't do it. Now, I will say, most poskim hold that all of this is a chumrah. That the ikar hadin is probably not even necessary. Again, we don't have time to get into it. Most posts can hold that even if you threw it straight into the garbage, it probably, it's only gram, have said, it probably would be okay. But this is a very, very mikubal. It's the best hitter. The alternative, a second best hitter, which a lot of our uh, Svarim quote, including this Mishpatei Arts, also mentions as a second option. And that is, you can put it in your regular garbage, but first put it in a separate bag. Put it in a bag, and then just throw it right in your regular garbage. Rav Chaim Kenevsky is quoting that when he was a kid, he remembers that's what everyone did. The second option, they threw it right into the garbage, but in a separate bag. Even that's a little bit of a chumrah, because you probably could throw it straight in the garbage. But it's already accepted as a chumrah that we put it in a bag. He then says, but in recent years, achshedare. Some things get better, lots of things get worse. Things get better, achshedare. This is a good chumrah, this is a good hitter. One should try to do it. So that is one of the downsides. You have to be careful not to throw things out, not to waste them. You have to put them away the right way. It's a little bit laborious. It's a little bit gross. It's a great chinuch opportunity for your kids if, they, if you have kids at home. Uh, but it is some level of work. Um, in addition to just, you know, the metaphysical, if you will, spiritual benefit of having, you know, imbibing kadosh produce and having that as part of your spiritual experience and religious experience for the year, it's also worth noting that, at least according to the Ramban in source number seven, it's a mitzvah. Not everyone agrees to this, but the Ramban says, at least as understood by Megillus Esther, source number eight, the Ramban seems to say, at least as the way the Megillus Esther understands him, that eating peros shvius is a mitzvah aseh. So it's not only got the more abstract benefit of I have some karosh thing in my body now but it may actually be we think usually more in terms of you know, uh, you know dollars and cents is it a mitzvah or not? says the Ramban eating perosh mitzvah is a mitzvah now even if the Ramban said it doesn't mean other Rishonim agree with him but it is the sheet of the Ramban it's a well known position that the Ramban holds that eating shemitah produce is a mitzvah so that is another reason why a lot of people opt for the Otsar Haaretz. You get the Kedusha, you're helping the Israeli economy in a, in a mutter way, and you perhaps, according to Ramban, doing a mitzvah. The flip side is, you now have for yourself and or your kids to deal with these challenges. My sense, and I'm, I'm, I'm doing this as generously as I can, and, but admittedly speculatively is, I think for a lot of people, to, certainly in the Haredi community, and their cost-benefit analysis the risk outweighs the benefit. And therefore, that's why in that community, I think it's less common. I don't want to guess how many, what percentage to what. I just don't know enough. I'm not an insider in that community. But certainly my, I think, clear impression is that this is less common of a solution 
in that community. And I think the reason is not because they hold that Utzer Bezin doesn't work. There may be people on the fringes who have that opinion. But in the mainstream view is not that it doesn't work, it's that it's just too complicated. First of all, there could be things going wrong on the farm. You just you never know. Just like you never know with any kashras, what's going on in the factory, what's going on. You know, it's just complicated. Are the, are the, are the representatives of the Bezdin and the Mashkichim, are they really there? Are the farmers listening? You know, there's all sorts of things you could be worried about if you want to be worried. And if you're not worried about on the farm, you're worried about what's going on in your own house. And therefore, all sorts of people will, uh, will choose to avoid it. I just want to take one or two questions only because we, I haven't even gotten to the farming issue and I want to, the gardening and I just want to, without, we're not going to have time to do any sources, but I just want to get through five, six, seven key points that you need to know uh, about gardening. And I don't want to run out of time. So let's take one or two quick questions. Yeah, Ali. It's probably, t- I don't know if I would do that, but that, it sounds like that would be a worst, what's called gram hefseid, that's indirect, and as far as I know, that is mutter. If you want to check up with me, I can double check. Uh, I hear what you're saying. Again, generally speaking, once you're doing this, you know, this process, most people try to just let it go. But, but I, I will say to you, by the way, again, I don't know, I don't, I'm not enough of a scientist, I don't know, but I, I saw in some of the Sfarim, they mentioned, you know, the very act of putting, you know, Mondays and then Tuesdays and whatever on top is probably also indirectly making it go faster than if it was just sitting by itself. So is moving it, it could be that that's all fine, it could be. I think so, yeah. I didn't even think about that. Sounds like a great solution, you should share that on the group. Uh, <laughs> I don't think so. Being from comes with uh, sacrifices, financial and otherwise. Yes, Shira. Uh, what if you mix vegetables, like, like vegetables, like with um, vegetables? I don't know if that's a... It all, all together in the... Yeah, I guess. Yeah, you, so, yeah, I mean, unless you want to start picking out. Right. That sounds like a lot of work. Yes, then I think I would just be Mahmir uh, on all of it. By the way, just a quick point, just before I forget, soup. Right, if you if you made a soup with shemitah vegetables, so then the soup has the kedusha. So what do you do? So there are some opinions that say you just leave the soup out one night, leave it out overnight. One night, that's enough. Other posts, I think I saw from Chaim Kenyevsky and others, they felt, come on, that's a joke. You know, we leave out soup by accident all the time. I come I come down from Indian, I'm like, who left the soup out? And usually it's like you. Anyway, so uh, and usually you just put it back in the fridge and it's okay. So not everyone relies on the one day. Some people like, say you have to leave it out. Really, until it's really gross. The best solution, Baruch Hashem, we live in the 21st century. You have Ziploc bags. Pour it into a sealed Ziploc bag, and then you can put it, uh, you know, probably right in the garbage, but certainly in your Pachshmita for a day or two, and then it's fine. But you probably can put it in the garbage. For that, I would just put it probably in my garbage, because it's going to spill everywhere. You're nervous about that. So, it's, yeah. Yes. I think so. As far as if they both have Kedusha Shavis, then they're the same. Oh, yeah, okay, there's so much to discuss. Yes, yeah. so, okay, let me spend two minutes on that. Again, it's a whole sheer, but two minutes on that, and then I really just want to get uh, to the gardening. Um, so, what do you do if you get invited out? Everyone has a friend, everyone has a relative who has different standards. Let me pause and say if you don't have any friends who have any different standards than you, we have to have a different shoes. Okay, and if you have no relatives that are different than you, nebuch, right? That's part of being part of the Jewish people is. 
And if you only if you only socialize with people exactly like you, I'm not sure that's exactly the ideal. So, but just in case, now that I've done editorializing, um, whether you like it or not, and I hope you do, people have different types of relatives, different types of friends that invite you to different places. What should you do? So again, if you generally wouldn't eat evil nachar, you wouldn't buy it yourself, but someone serves it to you. So then I can't tell you what to do. You have to decide, you know, your own personal emotional hashkafic comfort. If you feel so strongly against people who did that, but that's not really a halachic issue. So I don't have much to say about that. Certainly not publicly. Um, but in the other direction is, of course, the real question, which is if, let's say, you don't use Hatem Mechira, but that you get invited to someone's house, who you know, who does. So this really is a whole entire shear, but it can be divided up into two parts. If you feel that probably Mi'ikar Hadin, really, 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 Hatem works. But it's a Bidiyavid thing, and if we have this other option, why not use the other option? But I'm Machamir for myself, and I'm going to be Machamir for my family. But do I really think it's Chazar Treif? Do I really think it's not good? Nah, probably not. So really then what one should do, if you remember, it would be best if you could even do this consciously, is to say, you know, make a kablineder that I'm not eating Hatar uh, Mechira. But if you go to someone's house who serves it to you, then I think you have two good options. One good and one even better option. The good option, if you so desire, is you can say, usually I'm machmir, but now I have nothing else to eat, and they're serving it to me, and I really hope my prayer that it's so good. So usually I try to be machmir, but if I can't, so now for this one meal I won't. I think this is what to rely on for sure for that. If you really hold me karadin, that the works. You just usually are machmir, but today I'm not going to be. And certainly, certainly, the non-vegetable things, some, they serve you a, a piece of meat that was cooked in the same keli, that previously was cooking had the mechira stuff. Did the kalim become all of a sudden infused with taste and become treif? The answer is no. If you really hold that the had mechira is mutter, it's for sure mutter to eat in the person's house other things. And it may even be fine to eat actual had mechira produce if milim ikra din you said, especially if you said a blinader and you really don't think that there's a problem. Now I will say, and I've given this in, in, in a menshir about other things, not really in Shemitah, just in general about different religious practices. I do think, as much as I kind of advocated that we shouldn't always you know, have our nose up to our quote-unquote less religious friends or relatives, I think it's absolutely the, the responsibility to be a mensch is reciprocal. If you're inviting someone over to your house, or you have a cousin or a friend who's inviting you over, the absolute right thing to do, not just halakhali, ethically to be a mensch, is to let you know what their standards are, to ask what you're comfortable eating, and to try to be a good host by accommodating you. Would it kill them, you know, to do something else for the day that they invited you over? That's what it means to be a good host. So I think the responsibility to be a mensch is reciprocal. Right? You shouldn't embarrass them, you shouldn't, you know, try to be uh, so narrow-minded that you can't eat and, you know, make things difficult. But they should also let you know in advance and be as flexible as possible. I would say that about Chol Yisrael, I'd say that about a lot of Glat, I'd say that about a lot of things. Not just about Shemitah, but I think it's relevant. Uh, all of this is assuming that you think Mikar dinner probably works. But let's say you really, really, really are convinced your rabbi, your family, your posseg, chazanish, whatever, the Hatamachira is nothing. Absolutely nothing. So then you have a much bigger problem. You certainly can't eat any of their fruits and vegetables, you know, that they rely on the for. That's obvious. You wouldn't eat not kosher. Why would you eat this? And you have a bigger issue with what about the kalim? Even if you take that more machmir approach, there are reasons to be makil eating in that house. Not everyone accepts this. This Mishpate Aretz, I think, is machmir or Chaim Knievsky. There are post games in the Haredi world who will tell you you cannot eat in the house of someone who accepts that the But there are many other post if I remember correctly, I believe Rav Asher Weiss, uh, Rav Shlomo Zalman Orbach had chuvas about this, 
other people who do give various heterim uh, based on the assumption that one of the odds that the keli was used in the last 24 hours. A lot of the principles you're used to from regular kashras are transferable to questions relating to Shemitah. And therefore, if that's relevant for you, you know, either you figure it out on your own or you ask me, whoever your rub is, before you go. Um, but again, that's only going to be a real, real shaila if you're convinced that the head of is garnished. It's nothing. So then, it's complicated. There might be a solution still, but it's more complicated. Um, if you just are machmir not to do it, but you think, yeshal mi lismoch, for those who do, then you're obviously going to have more flexibility. Okay, I just did five minutes of what should be an hour, but uh, let me go on now to do ten minutes of what should be an hour on gardening. We're not going to do any sources, no background. I'm just going to give you a few bullet points of what is relevant um, for gardening. Again, not for real farmers. And I'm also going to point out that I'm not discussing now. I wouldn't have the time and I'm not expert enough for the people who are like growing like all sorts of things in their backyard that they actually want to eat. Like spice. That I'm not discussing uh, either. Okay, fruit trees we'll discuss in a second. But if you're growing all sorts of spices or carrots or who knows what, that I'm not discussing right now. But I'm talking about the people who have the usual uh, decorative garden. The, that's the closest thing I'm ever going to have uh, to having anything, right? You think it looks good. Uh, because some of us have fruit trees. I have three. I can't eat them yet because they're Arla. But um, that kind of stuff that people have, you know, the very low-key home gardens. So that's what I want to talk about uh, right now. So I want to divide it up into three parts. Work that can be done or must be done before Shemitah. And then maintaining your garden during Shemitah. And then flower pots. Even the kind of flower pot you might have at home if you have a you know, little flower or something uh, in your house. Okay, So we'll discuss uh, 16 bullet points. Okay, just, And then we'll finish the shear. And then anyone who wants to leave can leave. And I admit that I'm really, really bad at time management. And I'm not doing this justice. Uh, and I apologize. Okay, But this way at least we, we're Yotze and a few basic points that you should know about your gardening. Fruit trees, again, this is complicated. This is a sheer in itself. The bottom line is if you were going to wanted to plant a new fruit tree, I, first I would say, can't you just wait a year? Okay, but let's know, really, Rabbi Gali, I want to plant my new fruit tree this year. So if it was a completely new fruit tree, it wasn't in a clot of dirt, mamish, you know, uh, revealed, uh, uncovered roots, etc., you would have had to have planted by the 15th of Av. It's too late. Right, you need two weeks before the month of Elul, two weeks plus the month of Elul before Shemitah. But that's Allah, real fruit trees, even though obviously a lot of the growth is going to be in the Shemitah year, if you planted it by the 15th of Av, it would have been mutter. If, but that's not how anyone buys a tree now anyway from the nursery. Usually when they bring you the tree, right, it's a huge clot of dirt and soil that's surrounding uh, the root. So if it has enough soil, not just a shtickle, you know, uh, but a, a, enough soil, I think some posts can say that in theory it couldn't live like that you know, for two weeks. Uh, not forever, but it's enough. It's, it doesn't, uh, you know, the way they usually bring it, if you get it from a good nursery. So then it, is, um, it can be uh, done, it should be done by Rosh Chodesh Elul. So you're still too late for that, if that's all you had. Okay? Um, if the roots are in the dirt. Um, now, let's say it was in the nursery, and in the nursery, where you bought it from, it was sitting in a, was a pottage, it was you know, this little thing, this sapling, with the dirt encasing its roots, and it was sitting in a flower pot, or whatever the right word is, tree pot, whatever it's called, that had a hole in the bottom you know, for the roots, to, you know, for the nourishment to come up from the ground. Right? A, lot of, you know, a lot of those like you know, earthenware flower pots, you have a little hole in the bottom, right? So that's for the roots and for the, for the nutrients. That's what's called a halacha and otzitz nakuf, right? If you've got one of those, which I think is typical, typical if you go to the nursery, and if, you, if you're sending your gardener to the nursery, then you should try to be mocked on it, if you still wouldn't want to do it now, then it's mutter until Rosh Hashanah. 
You can still do it. If you still, if you want to still plant a fruit tree, your only option right today is to make sure it was in a clot of dirt already and it's sitting in the nursery in what's called an otzitznakov. Then they can bring it to your house and transfer it into your yard and it's totally fine until Rosh Hashanah. That's fruit trees. Okay, now we just did three points. Number four, let's say you have just a pretty decorative tree or something else. It's called an Elon Srak. That means a non-fruit-bearing tree. So that, according to uh, some poskim, including the Chazonish, who's more lenient, until Rosh Hashanah's mother, Rav Kuk and others who are machmir say that, had to, that has to be done until Tetzvav Elul. Are we there already? Is that today or yesterday or tomorrow? Or right around Tetzvav Elul, right? Um, so, but even if you wanted... So first of all, you can be making like the Chazonish. Second of all, nowadays it's not really a machlokas anymore because... Again, from the nursery, when they give it to you, it's sitting in, it's, it's encased in dirt. And a non-fruit-bearing uh, tree that is encased already in dirt, the roots are encased, everyone, Rav Kook and the Chazanish, hold that it's mutter until Rosh Hashanah. So that kind of plant or that kind of tree would be mutter uh, even now. You have another two weeks to do it. Okay? Now, flowers, right? Most of us, most of our gardens are flowers more than uh, trees. Flowers. So... In theory, there's a distinction between flowers that are done for fragrance or regular flowers, but for the most part, anything we're planting in our backyard either doesn't have a fragrance or that's not why we're planting it, and therefore there's really no distinction in our backyard on a practical level. And the answer is, amach lokes. And again here, again you've heard it now a second time in a row, Rav Kook is more machmir than the Chazonish. Rav Kook holds that you need to do that, you're still, but you're still okay, we're still in the window. By the 26th of Elul. Four days before Shemitah. Because small little flowers, it takes, they think, about four days for it to take root. So you want to make sure it takes root before Rosh Hashanah, according to Rav Kok. He's machmir, it should take root before Rosh Hashanah. Shlom Azam Norbach was machmir like Rav Kok. The Chazanish is Mako. So if you're asking me today, I would say, why not be machmir like Rav Kok? Make sure you get your new flowers in before the 26th of Elul. If you call me on the 27th of Elul, I probably would tell you, you know, Yeshom Elisabach, you can rely on the Chazanish. But why not try to be machmer for Rav Kook and Rav Zaman Orbach and do it before the 26th of Elul. Okay, that's all planting if you want to do any extra new stuff before Shemitah. What about for those of us who have things, but we want to make sure that our garden doesn't completely get destroyed and uh, ruined uh, during the year. So, so the answer is, the basic premise which is in the Halacha and the Gemara and the Rambam and the Shulchan Aruch is we make a distinction between what's known in Hebrew as Le'ukmei versus Le'ivruyei. Or as my friend and our neighbor, uh, Rabbi Shmuel Mebrick likes to say, there's a difference between thriving and surviving. Anything that's being done for the uh, tree or the flower to survive, we don't want it to be dead by the end of the year, that is mutter to take care of. Anything that would be done to just make it better and grow better and more enhanced to thrive, that is uh, prohibited. Here also there's a machlokis. And again, Rav Kook is the one who's more machmi. Rav Kook says we only care about the life of the actual tree or the actual flower. But if the, but if the fruits, let's say, are going to grow, are they going to die, we don't care about. And the Chazanish says, no, the same heter, that we just want things to survive, we're just not trying to have our best yield, but just to basically survive, the Chazanish says that's mutter even for the, the fruits, not just for the tree itself. But for the most part, in our backyards, mostly we're talking about uh, the tree or the, the, uh, the, the, uh, the flower itself. So anything that's based, that's the basic premise. Anytime you're not sure about something, that's the question you have to ask yourself or your gardener if that's relevant. Are you doing this just to make sure that it doesn't die? Or are you doing this like you would in a normal year? Because by pruning, for example, usually when you prune, it's not to avoid the flower or the tree dying. You're doing it so that it grows better. That is Asr and Shemitah. 
And you need to know that, and if your farmer doesn't know that, you need to get a gardener doesn't know that, then you have the wrong gardener. That is very rarely going to be mutter, unless it really could be, and you're trusting the gardener, or if you, if you know what you're doing, then you're trusting yourself, that if I don't do this, the flower, the tree's going to die, but, or really, really get damaged. But other than that, something like you shouldn't be doing, because usually things like pruning are done to help um, it, it get better. Um, so, um, so pruning, again, only if it's to survive. Uh, trimming. You know, just stop to trim. Again, technically speaking, if they're doing it just for it to be prettier, it probably would be mutter, unless by trimming it, you're going to make it grow better. So the farmer, whoever's doing it, really needs to know. Trimming, I could see sometimes being mutter, but probably is also going to be hard. Uh, things will look a little bit messier next year. That's what it means to be part of Shemitah. What about weeding or taking out dead stuff, which is what I hope he's doing right now in my house, because there's a lot of dead stuff the last few weeks. Um, and the answer is, and I actually, my, my gardener, I'm happy to give him a hastama, Dotan, uh, he says he follows Rev Rimon, he and I went over some halachos, but he told me he follows Rev Rimon Sefer. Uh, so what he does, and he even showed me how he would do it, but things like the dead stuff, it can be removed next year, you don't have to resign yourself to seeing lots of dead stuff all year but not by the root. In a normal year, as he told me, normal, he'd come for a tipul, he'd rip, he'd see something dead, he'd rip it out by the root, replace it. You can't do that during the Shemitah year, because if you do that, you're going to make everything else that's there grow better. But what he can do is he can cut it close to the root. So at least it doesn't look ugly. Okay, and that is, that is permissible. Can you use weed killer to kill the weeds and then have them after? I think so. If I, th- I would think so. I would ask him, but he, he's going to know more than me. But um, that, what's it called? Now, here's the most important question. Watering. For reasons which I cannot get into now, according to many post scheme, watering might be even more mutter than everything else. There are post who will say you can water without any reservation. There are post So if your gardener does that, he doesn't make him a sinner. If you know a friend or neighbor who does it, the Yeshmali is a smoke. Many, many other post including Reverend Moan and others, suggest Lachachila not relying on that completely. But there still are heterim, and heter is based on the same principle we said, to survive versus to thrive. And therefore, in many, many places, you could probably find it, in, I don't know where they sell these things, or online, or you might have neighbors that have them. There are a lot of, you know, luchot, various schedules where people tell you, for grass, do it once of this, and for flowers, do it once of that. They tell you, you know, to, to water very little, or they give you even amounts, how many liters or milliliters of water... It's very complicated, and I don't even think that's the best way or necessary. What Rav Rimon recommends, and it's based on the Pesach of Rav Nissen Karelitz, so definitely, uh, whether you're from B'nai Brak or Alon Shfut, you could feel comfortable uh, with this, is that you should try to limit, or I'll say it this way, you should expand the intervals. In other words, if you usually would water a certain thing every two days, so water it every three or four days. In other words, expand the intervals, make it longer than a normal year, but once you're doing it, then it's mutter you know, to do as much water uh, as you think it needs. That's even if you're watering by hand. Posting strongly recommend using a sprinkler system if that's available, because that's automated. That just, I mean, that's, you know, you're, not doing the, you're not sitting there the whole time doing the malacha. And if you're like many of us, who through your gardener have one of those drip technology things where you don't even think about it, it's just automated happening. According to many posting, according to your own, it's heter gomer. So the answer, I just, so the answer, if you're talking about flowers, flowers, especially now, like again, many of you are probably getting tea pool now in the next, or I hope you're, you're all hoping you get tea pool in the next uh, week or two, right? Flowers, especially new flowers, are incredibly fragile. And I spoke to Dotan about it, uh, just to give again, he's one example. I'm not trying to get him all the business, but you know, if there's any referral fees, we're happy to accept them. Um, 
But um, it's in the Sfarim that I saw as well, um, especially in the beginning, flowers really, you, you really, you could probably keep, especially, especially if you use it on the computer. According to the computer, for most post-schemer, if you're passing this way for sure, if it's on this automated system, it's Heter Gomor. So in the beginning, you really do need that. He explained to me, I can't remember what dates he gave me, but he was telling me, over the course of the year, at some point, then when they, they really are established, the flowers, then he'll, he said, then he, you know, he makes the computer do, you know, he'll, he'll expand you know, the, free, you know, the intervals in between. But anything, and that, I don't have a scientific formula for you, but the answer in a certain sense is very simple. Anything that you would need, that if you don't do it, and again, flowers in general are more fragile, especially when they're new, they're very, very fragile. If you don't take care of them, they will die. And that you do not have to let your things die next year. That's not the Mitzvah Shemitah. So anything that's done just to make sure that they can survive, that would be uh, that would be permissible. Let me end in the next two minutes. I'm sorry we're going so long. I'm happy a few people still stayed with us. Um, let me just mention flower pots, okay? And flower pots, even again, as I said last time, I'm not making it complicated. It is a little bit. I'm trying to make it less complicated. But there are two different variables. One is that we talk about a flower pot that's outside or on a windowsill, or we talk about the flower pot that's in your den. Or, you know, in your kitchen, uh, so to speak. And then there is, as I already alluded to, there are flower pots that have that little hole, or they're somehow, which halakhtily we view as connected to the ground, even though they're in a pot. Or are they what's called atzit enonakov? Now, there's three ways, and it's obviously going to be much more lenient if it's not, quote-unquote, in the ground. And there are three ways to make it enonakov, so that's good news. One is if you have an actual flower pot that doesn't have a hole. But number two is even if your regular flower pots have a hole, put something that's non-earthenware underneath it. So if you have it on a plastic plate, or you literally take a piece of plastic or silver or tin foil, and you put it underneath your regular flower pot, even though it has a hole, halakhali, the hole disappeared. Or, if you have, let's say your bedroom is on the second floor, and this is in your bedroom, anything two floors above the ground level is already mutter also. So if you live in an apartment building, on the second floor or higher, if if you're in your personal house, your private house, you're on the second floor, anything more than two floors above the ground, um, is considered not uh, nakuv. So the more machmir situation is if you have an earthenware pot that is either literally sitting on the ground in your backyard, which lots of people often will have that, uh, or your front yard or wherever, or it's you know in the house, but there's nothing separating the hole from the ground from the floor, and you're somewhere other than the second floor of your house. Then you are in the more machmir situation. But the second floor of the house, you have anything that's not earthenware underneath it, or it doesn't have a hole at all. So then you're in the more makel situation. What do you do? So the bottom line is, if you're in the more makel situation, no hole or it's on the second floor, watering is permissible like every other year. You can even cut or prune the dead things off it. Totally motor. Shlomo Zaman Orbach even thought you could plant something like that anew. If you want to do some project with your kids and plant something, we try not to do that, but Shlomo Zaman Orbach thought Mikradena might even be permissible. But certainly the watering and the upkeep of a, of a flower that's eno nakuv, in your house, above the second floor, or there's no hole at all, that is totally permissible. What if it's in the garden? You have a flower pot in the garden, outside. If it's nakuv, we view it like everything else we said. So everything I just said about watering, it's all the same. The one new thing is, you should not move it. Because each time you pick it up and then put it back down, is a new act of planting. You didn't realize you just did a major avera. Now, if you want to pick it up outside and bring it inside, that's mutter. There's nothing, in the Shemitah you can rip out things. You're allowed to take things. But you can't move it and put it back down outside. And you certainly should take something from inside and put it outside if it's not moved. That would be an act of planting. You just became a farmer who transgressed.
for all the shirum you went to. Don't do that, okay? Please, please, please. That's worse than eating Hedem Echir, I promise, okay? So don't do that. That's an easy mistake. Hopefully, uh, if nothing else, uh, those who are still with us will, will hopefully remember that. Um, if you have something that isn't a nakuf thing and you go, oh my gosh, I forgot, easy solution. Just take it out and put it in. Either put something underneath the pot. And you can turn an enu, a, a, a nakuv into an enu nakuv. There's nothing wrong going in that direction um, at all. And last but not least, what about you have something on, in your, on your windowsill or you have those window boxes that are hanging off the side of the window or something like that. So those are more complicated. If it's outside and kind of facing the ground, which typically it would be, then you have to view it as if it's on the ground. Now you have all the halakhas I just mentioned. Again, it's there. You treat it like anything else that's in, in, in your actual garden. The fact that it's off of your windowsill does not make it more makil. Um, that would be uh, a real issue, um, especially if it's covered by some kind of roof. Like if you have some kind of the ledge of your house or whatever that's sticking out or the windowsill or something like that, or an awning. So between that and it being outside, uh, that really could make it uh, more, more complicated. Um, yeah, I mean, that's the bottom line. The bottom line is you have something like an Otsitz Nakuv uh, that's outside, or even if it's Eno Nakuv, but it's, it's covering something, uh, that, that is more complicated. So, again, you can have it, but you have to treat it, for the most part, like it would be in the garden itself. Okay, I apologize for rushing through all that, and I certainly apologize for keeping you guys so long, but I'm happy to stay and answer any other questions that you would like.